2002 movie Frank Abagnale life is told in a movie called Catch Me If You Can. If you've seen this movie, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Frank Abagnale, who's a con artist. Starts, he has no money, and so he learns how to become what he needs to become in order to get a job, but he's never really that person. Starting with a high school French teacher, he pretends to be the French teacher when he himself is still in high school. It goes from there to him pretending to be a doctor, and then he pretends to be a lawyer. (laughs) He pretends to be an airline pilot for Pan Am. Uh, All of this before he's 20 years old. He just finds out how to make people trust him, and then after they trust him, they promote him, and he gets the ultimate job, even though he never knows what he's doing. That reminds me of us. So I thought I would spend some time this morning, just not the whole service, just taking a few moments uh, to try to touch that part of you that feels a little bit like Frank Abagnale, um, that you're not who people think you are. Because I, that's kind of how it feels in, for me to, to be a shepherd for my life or as a pastor. Uh, To start with, I'm not very good at this. I never know what to say. I'm in a situation after another. Every hour the situation changes and I find myself in the middle sometimes of a very sticky situation and I never know what to say. The first funeral I did, they met, I didn't even know the guy. I got because they couldn't find a pastor. They called me. I met him at the door. The son met me at the door and said, are you the pastor? I said, yes, I am. He said, well, that's my father in there. He was a mean beep. Then he said, I don't want you saying any nice things about him. Other than that, say whatever you want. But whatever you say, don't lie. So I got up and tried to fumble through my first homily of a, I'd never even been to a funeral before. We didn't practice this in college. We just got kind of dumped into it. I was 28 years old riding an elevator and the oncologist turns to me and says, I have to tell this person who's a member of your church that the cancer is terminal. She has less than a few weeks to live. I don't have the nerve to tell her. I need you to tell her. I'm thinking, dude, I'm 28. You're like 50 something. Shouldn't you be doing this? But it turns out they don't train you for this in med school. And so I sort of get handed the ball. That would be the first of multiple times. I've had people call me on a Thursday afternoon saying, just answer the question, yes or no. If a person commits suicide, do they go to hell necessarily? I said, can we talk about this? He said, just answer the question. I find out the man is sitting in a wheelchair holding a revolver. And what he does in the next few moments depends on the advice that I give him. I've stood next to people in funeral homes where suicide was the reason for death. And they say, I'm pretty certain that my loved one made it to heaven. Don't you think so, Pastor Steve? I never know what to say in situations like this because the subject is always changing. And this is not like math where they teach you a handful of equations and then you learn them and then you apply those to whatever the situation is, you find yourself, do you not just suddenly immersed into something that you are not ready for? Or is this just me? Second, if you're leading anything at all, you don't know where you're going. 
I mean, from one day to the next, you can talk about vision and all of that because people need a vision. But the truth is, in your own head, it doesn't all come together. Third, it takes you and me too long to make decisions. Leaders are supposed to be decisive, to know how to weigh the evidence and then to make the decision. But we can never do that in time. Every time I speak, it seems that the sermon uh, is impractical. I mean, I know this but I don't care anymore. Because <laughs> I don't know how to make it practical. So you come away from that thinking, well, shepherds feed their sheep. <laughs> I think they're, I don't know whether they're eating or not. And fifth of all, as an introvert, I mean, I like people three at a time. And you find yourself always in crowds larger than that. So there's always this sense of saying, well, we finally get to meet you. What a disappointment. I, t- <laughs> I tell Lori, I say, you know, they'll listen to me, but they like you. <laughs> so, so there's this constant tension and frustration as a shepherd where you're supposed to do something, but you never know what you're doing. Can I get a witness? Mm, man. Because of my job, I've been in a room with 10 or 12 high-profile leaders in the last three or four months. I've been in rooms with way more than that, having conversations with you, you, about what it is to shepherd people. Because a few weeks ago, you said, we really want to do this. And you took this on. And you started to take responsibility for someone's spiritual life. And then you got into it, and it felt like you didn't know where you were going from there. What I discovered is that almost every shepherd lives with an internal frustration all of the time. God bless us. Are you tracking? So I start reading through Moses' story again. Because he's the quintessential leader. And I got a wonderful breath of fresh air. To start with, he didn't like his job. Now, I love mine, honestly, but there are days, and you feel exactly the same way. Not only that, he was called to lead people who didn't like him. They didn't believe him whenever he talked. They constantly grumbled and said, you have led us out here to starve us in the wilderness. And when I'm reading this in my office with the door shut so I can talk out loud, I am pleading Moses' case. I'm like, are you serious? Can you not turn around and see the Red Sea behind you? Can you not see the manna and the quail? And you still think, uh, come on, how many times are you going to say this? But that's who he was called to lead. Third, he never knew where he was going either. He'd wake up in the morning and if God said, we have to move, we have to move. In fact, the book of Exodus ends by saying that they stayed where they were until the cloud and the pillar moved. And when the cloud and pillar moved, everybody would pack up and leave. But they would stay where they were until the cloud and pillar moved. Can you imagine leading 600,000 men plus their families? And they come to you and say, what is God's vision for the future? And you go, to be determined. 
because the cloud and the pillar has not moved. How long can you do this before your approval rating starts to go down? Not only that, he constantly felt responsible for something he could not make happen. Moses, throw down your staff. Moses, put your hands over the sea. Moses, speak to the rock. Moses, throw the wood into the water. And every time he does these things, they must have seemed to him harebrained. And the result depended upon what God and God alone was going to do. But he was constantly on the edge, having to do things that didn't make sense. And he couldn't make them happen. Fifth, most of, is that how how many complaints are there? Most of them, uh, of his work was done in private. When he was on a mountain, arguing with God to negotiate a better future for people who did not appreciate what it is to argue with God for their future. It was unseen and it was undervalued and he was called to it consistently. And what struck me as I got to the end of his life in Exodus or in uh, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 40, and this was the hardest of all, is that I think he died feeling like a failure. All of this would be bearable if it ended well. But to our knowledge, he did not hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Instead, what we read in Deuteronomy chapter 32 is that the Lord tells him to go out to the Abarim Ridge. There climb Mount Nebo. And when you are on Mount Nebo, look over the vast horizon and you will see the fabled land where you have been moving people for 80 years. You will see it, but you yourself will not enter it because you didn't speak to the rock. You struck it in anger and that one mistake cost you. In fact, God would tell him that three times, which seems symbolic to me, because it's not like God to rub it in our faces. And yet in his life, there's three times when he calls Moses to the top of the ridge, look at the land, and then he reminds him, you yourself will not enter because you failed at the critical moment. So Moses climbs the mountain. He looks over and he sees the land. And after he sees it, the Lord tells him yet another time, you see it, you will not enter because you have not kept my holiness in front of the people. Moses then goes down that mountain into the valley of Bet Peor, and while he is there, he dies. And we don't know how he dies. It just says the Lord buried him. And all I can think of is that this may not have been a peaceful quiet ending. What if it was a natural disaster? More like a more like a rock slide then. Because I'm not sure God dug a hole. Maybe he did. But I'm not positive he dug a hole. It's just as 
It's just as likely, the truth is nobody knows and I don't either, that the ending could have been very peaceful or it could have been very violent. But either way, he was buried in an unmarked grave. To this day, nobody knows where he's at. And so I started adding up the pieces to this. And you can see the angst that was building up inside. Here is a man that has given 80 years of his life and done some of the most heroic things. And yet when he gets to the end of his life, on account of one mistake, he is told he must look at the range three times and then told each time he will not go in. As he comes down the mountain, he is possibly buried in a tragic accident by God himself in an unmarked grave. The last hours of his life are on a mountain alone. He's not with his family. He's alone. And after he dies, Joshua, his stock is rising while Moses fades into the distant memory. And then we get the epilogue. In all of Israel's history, never was a man like Moses who did all of these things and spoke to God face to face like a friend. And when I heard it, I asked myself, why didn't somebody tell him that while he was alive? Here's what I mean. About six weeks ago, you called Lori and I onto this platform, and for 20 years of service, we are grateful. You showered affirmation after affirmation upon us. But here is a man who served his people four times that long, and his congregation was 400 times the size of this one. And yet the end feels more tragic than it does satisfying, at least to me. Are you there? Well, it seemed like an invitation to go back over Moses' life and read about this struggle that he had as Israel's leader. And what I found, you guys, was a series of contradictions. And I think it was here in these contradictions, Moses' frustration was always rising. He could never put these to rest. And here's why I tell you this. Because as I slip into offices of the 10 to 12 people I've talked to, I hear the same contradictions. These have not been 10 or 12 different conversations. It's been the same conversation 10 or 12 times. These contradictions rise. A person will say one thing in one moment, and six minutes later, they'll say something entirely opposite. So for instance, I hear Moses saying, I am called to do this. I feel chosen. I must do this. And about five minutes later, he says, man, I am so inadequate. I can't do this. This thing is draining me energy. On the one hand, he says, I love my job. On the other hand, he says, I hate the pressure. Can I get a witness? This job gives me energy. This job exhausts me. This is exactly what happened to him. 
He's minding his own business one day when God interrupts with a burning bush. He answers the bush, what are you supposed to do? And by the time he answers it, God already has a plan. He says, I will do it, but you must go. And Moses starts throwing up all these defenses. He says, I'm not any good at this. The people won't listen to me. I have a speech defect and I don't even like these people. But he cannot talk God out of this. God has made up his mind. And so he is caught in this frustration of being called to do something and yet feeling the entire time that he's not any good at this. Is this you? I mean, it leads to what some call an imposter syndrome, which is the idea that, look, there's a dirty little secret. I'm not any good at my job. Nobody has figured this out yet, I think. Maybe they're just being nice. But someday they're going to be on to me. And when they're on to me, the game is up and I will have to go. These people continuously call every success luck. They quit early and they bounce from one commitment to the next. They sabotage their own success because they can't imagine themselves having any success. And it rises, I think, from this internal tension of being called to do something that we never quite got good at. I hear another one. I hear, I hear people say, oh man, I'm optimistic. God will provide. We must have faith. And then five minutes later, I hear them saying, oh man, I'm pessimistic. We don't know where we're going. Where is God when you need him? And they're saying this five minutes apart. And I hear Moses standing at the brink of the river or I hear him standing with the quail and the manna and the cloud and the pillar is there and there's an optimism. God is doing great things in our community. Watch what he will do. And yet on the other hand, there is this nagging sense that he never knows where he's going. One moment, I have a dream. Next moment, where are we? I hear people say, I hear Moses say in one moment, man, these are my people. I love these people. A moment later, these people drive me crazy. So like in Numbers chapter 11, when the people of Israel rebel again, Moses is in the, they drive me crazy mode. He turns in and he says, Lord, who am I that you should give me this problem? He says, are these people mine? Did I give birth to these people? Why would you make me lead people that are not necessarily my people? So he's completely frustrated and he's distancing himself from the people. But three chapters later in Numbers chapter 14, when God is angry, Moses steps up. And says, no, 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 no. Remember, these are your people. If, if you kill these people now, the Egyptians will say that you didn't know how to lead them. You must be strong, Lord. <laughs> I'm 
I'm thinking, wow, man, do you hear what I'm saying? The dude is all over the place. At the end of his life, he knows he's done. But Deuteronomy says his eyes are still strong. He can still see the future and he's still got strength and stamina. Moses thinks he's got another inning or two in him. He wants to go on and the Lord says, no, you're done. And I hear this tension in leaders today. On the one hand, they're thinking, I've done a good job. It's been a good career. I'm ready to move to the next thing. Five minutes later, they're saying, oh, there's still so much more to do. Oh, I'm not sure if the next generation, if Joshua is quite ready yet. Are you hearing? And I'm, 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 I'm listening and I'm thinking, hmm, that sounds like a contradiction. Can I take a few moments, really just a few, because I'm looking at the clock, uh, and, uh, and, and just speak to you from what I think I heard God say as I wrestled with these tensions, because I clearly have felt all of them. N- nobody here drives me crazy. <laughs> For, first of all, um, you are not losing your mind. You are not a hypocrite. Because these are not contradictions. They're tensions. In contradiction, something is true and a moment later it is not true. But when something is in tension, two things that seem to be opposite are true at the same time. This is not a contradiction. It is a tension. But it is in those tensions that you feel the frustration. That's what makes you feel stuck and like you can't do this. And what your tendency will be is to ask God to just take one of these things away. Either A, make me better at this, or B, find somebody else. Either make me love these people and never be frustrated or give me the nerve to not like these people forever and just walk away. But you can't leave me with two feelings at the same time. That's where the frustration and the tension is coming from, I think. And our trouble, people, is that we keep trying to resolve it. No, no, listen. You don't resolve tension. You resolve conflict. When something is in conflict, the Latin word literally means to strike against. We have two feelings or ideas that are colliding. I love these people. These people drive me crazy and they're fighting. But when something is in tension, the Latin means to pull apart. I have two things that are moving in opposite direction. 
here's what I think I heard the Lord say. And, and by the way, I'm speaking to teachers who feel called to teach and yet they are exhausted. I'm speaking to people that are in athletics who are always caught between the tension or the the pressure of the crowd. You are what your record says you are and their internal desire to do something bigger than athletics. I'm speaking to my peers in the ministry. Almost one third of my colleagues in ministry have said they've considered leaving ministry at some time in the last two years years. I'm speaking to leaders of organizations who since COVID are wondering if maybe they should just hang it up early and start over in another career. So believe me, there's a lot of people here. Here's what I'm thinking I hear from the Lord. First, frustration is a gift. Embrace it. Frustration only means that you are trying to do something that is too big for you. Frustration means you are trying to move people who don't want to be moved. But it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong. It means your job is hard. It is supposed to be hard. And not only that, You are growing as much as your people are growing. It's not like you're ahead of them and you've got this figured out and and, and, and you're going to kind of take them. No, no, that's not what shepherding is. Shepherding is coming alongside someone when neither of you know where this is going. Building a relationship with those people and going to places you cannot know, but you go together. So the shepherd is formed in the crucible of these tensions. If you ask for God to take away the frustration, he won't because he shouldn't. The frustration is the labor pains that produce what is new. You want to grow. There will be resistance. Sorry. I hear this collective sigh. Second. But in frustration, something new is rising. Let it. The root word for tension is tent. If you take two stakes opposite each other and you move them in opposite directions, you cause the tent in between them to rise. You cannot build something new without two feelings moving in opposite direction. The tension you feel 
is a good thing because it's giving rise to something you don't have yet and it's new for you. And what's frustrating you is you don't know how to do that yet. You're not supposed to know how to do that yet. We learn that in the tension. So if you find yourself saying, I am called to do this, but on the other hand, I'm no good at this, I think what's rising is a new kind of leadership that leads from weakness, not strength. If you find yourself saying, I have a dream, but I don't know where I'm going, I think that's a tension that gives rise to a new kind of leadership that is more nomadic than it is corporate where the most important component is that we are together and we move in unison as led by God and it is not that we always know where we're going. That feels uncomfortable because the culture has trained me to become one kind of leader and I can't do that here anymore because I'm fighting with myself all the time. Are you guys okay? Third, almost done. There is room in this tension for company. Let them in. As Israel grows, Moses tries to judge the entire nation. Exodus 18 says he's sitting on his chair from morning until evening trying the cases. Finally, his father-in-law comes in and says, I got a better idea. Why don't you find somebody to come into your nightmare and let them lead at other levels? You shepherd them while they shepherd the people. Brilliant idea. And so he tries it. In Numbers chapter 11, I'm sorry, I think it's chapter, no, it's chapter 11, where Moses is tired from prophesying and he says to the Lord, why do you put all the weight of this nation on me? Yahweh says, find 70 leaders and stand them at the mouth of your tent. What do you want me to do? Nothing. Leave them standing there and I will put my spirit upon them. And so he does. He finds 70 leaders. They stand at the mouth of the tent and the spirit of God comes down and those 70 people begin to prophesy like Moses himself prophesied. Suddenly he has company in the struggle. Our tendency when we're frustrated is to feel like there's something wrong with us and so we withdraw and we try to solve it alone and I won't show myself to the people until I have figured it out. Hmm, listen, we all know that you don't know what you're doing. We know this. We have known this a long time. Quit faking it. It is easier to just reach out and say, dude, listen, <laughs> The rumors about me are not all true. I need help. Would you come into my world and help me carry this? Boy, last. Keep. At the end, this is God's work. Let it go. 
you got this job because you stepped forward when other people wouldn't. You took responsibility for somebody else's spiritual life, and that is a magnificent thing. Thank you for the way that you care for people as well as you do. But when you feel the frustration, you must be able to let it go. Two weeks ago, you put someone's name on a card. And then you came onto this platform and you walked back here and placed it on the altar. Do you remember that? Leave it there. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a hero of mine, spent the last years of his life in a prison cell attempting to assassinate Adolf Hitler. He considered it a moral obligation. In the prison cell, he wrote several letters and papers to his best friend, Eberhard Betke. And he speaks about all sorts of theological concepts that he never had time to unpack. But occasionally in this book, he writes poems. Right about the time it was discovered he was behind the plot on Hitler's life, it was pretty certain now he would lose his own for sure. One of the poems that Bonhoeffer wrote at that time in his life is called, Who Am I? And I won't read the whole thing, but I thought the words, the language of this, in my opinion, saint, who stood in the fires and ultimately died a martyr's death, he described vividly what every shepherd in this room feels like. Who am I? They tell me I step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a priest from his study. Who am I? They tell me I talk to the guards freely, friendly, clearly, as though it were mine to command. Am I then what other men say I am? Or am I only what I know of myself? Restless, longing, sick, struggling for breath, yearning for colors, for flowers, thirsting for words of kindness, for affirmation, trembling with anger and petty humiliation, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends, moving to an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? This or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and before myself a contemptible weakling? Who am I? 
they mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever else I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. <laughs>